0: Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's gonna guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital and don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Today's guest is Mark Stoos, Chairman and CEO of Proof Analytics. Mark is many things, a proud father of two Teenage Sons, a visiting lecturer in several American universities, and also the host of the Accelerating Value podcast. After a successful career overseeing marketing and operations in companies like HP, Honeywell, and BMC Software, Mark founded Proof Analytics, a platform that helps marketers to plan, predict, and prove the impact of their work. It was chosen as one of the 50 startups to watch for 2023 by Silicon Valley Review, and has also already gathered a formidable client base. So he's joining us today to talk about the role of data in innovation and what it means to be an innovator. Welcome to the show, Mark. I'm very excited to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you.
0: There's a lot to get through, but you've had a a pretty interesting career to date. So what I want to do is quickly just get a quick summary of your journey up into proof analytics before we dive into a little bit about what you're doing currently. Do you want to give us a quick summary?
1: I was a working professional journalist when I was still at university, working for Newsweek at that time, and stuck with that after graduation for a while. I was covering a lot of politics and got bit by that bug, and went into various staff-level roles in Washington, D.C. for a time. Was really good at it for someone my age, which was actually part of the problem. And so I kind of all of a sudden realized this. I can't claim a tremendous amount of self-awareness for myself at that particular moment, but I had enough to realize that what I was so good at was actually extremely corrosive for me and a lot of other people. People. And so I punted and left, which and one of the things that's really relevant in analytics is the concept of time lag. You know, you do something and it takes a while for it to manifest and have meaning in your life or in your go to market or, you know, whatever it is, happens to be. And looking back on it with hindsight, you know, I'm very grateful that I hunted. And left because it was probably one of the best things I ever did in my life. And then I went on the agency side, Edelman, Hill and Alton big firms for the most part. and then I had my first entrepreneurial experience talk about and this is sort of a pattern in my life where I will take orthogonal detours, you know like really different stuff at different points in my career. And so I founded a defense contracting business that was very tech focused and did that for nine years. That was most of the 1990s at that point and exited it to a defense industry leader and was kind of sitting around at a fairly young age saying, okay, what do I want to do now? And this was right about the time, this was like a year or so before the dot-com bust. So everything was as things invariably are, Right before a bus, they're running ultra red hot. And so I ended up on the consulting side in a big consulting firm in Silicon Valley, doing all kinds of cool, but in retrospect, somewhat meaningless activity. And then, of course, you know, you just things start coming unwound, and sometimes you can sense it and sometimes you can't sense it. And in my particular case, I could because I had grown up through the Texas oil bust. And so a lot of that was tattooed on my memory, even on my subconscious, really. And so I started kind of like getting very uneasy, kind of like in the February, March, April of 2000 kind of timeframe. And right about that time, I had the opportunity to go corporate, which turned out to be a pretty good deal. It was, You know, large corporations at that time, anyway, were pretty good place to hide out during economic downturn. Not not so much anymore, but at that time that was true. And so I went to Compact and I had a really interesting conversation in my interview with Michael Capellas, the CEO at that time. And you couldn't help but figure out that you were being kind of interviewed for two different reasons, one of which they weren't going to tell you. And I, so I took the role, and then about four months later, they announced the intention to merge with HP. And all of a sudden, I started running merger communications, essentially running the political campaign in support of merger. Went through the integration with HP, did a lot of really cool stuff at HP, went on to BMC software, and then ultimately the CMO ship of Honeywell Aerospace. This was the period of time where I got. Bit by the analytics bug in a really big way, and indeed, it was the cited reason why Honeywell recruited me to be the CMO of aerospace. So at that time, the aerospace division was the largest division. I think it's probably still is twelve thirteen billion dollars per year in revenue. So it would be a Fortune fifty company all by itself. That was sort of like the ultimate. We got the analytics to a very high degree of maturity. By that point, it was super successful, but and we were spending like eight or nine million dollars a year just on analytics, and no one questioned the value of that at all. But it was super obvious, okay, that we were having to solve the biggest issues around analytics, which is how to operationalize the insights and the processes so that it serves the speed of the business it operates. We were having to do that by brute force, basically just over hiring the living hell out of data science team members. And that this was a classic automation play. And so that's what ultimately led me to create proof. So proof has taken multivariable regression analytics, which is you know not new math at all. It's uh, tried, tested for literally hundreds, if not thousands of years, but it's always struggled in business because the models were mega models that took a long time to recompute. So there was this real lag in terms of the way that analytics was actually able to serve the business and we automated it. And so, you know, now, you know, that's where we are today.
0: Let's talk quickly about proof analytics. Can you tell us a little bit about what does proof do in terms of um, how does it add value for marketers?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that As a senior marketer, as a CMO, I, particularly, you know, having essentially done this for the past 35 years or so, I had experienced all the same problems that have afflicted marketers from time immemorial, particularly around proving their value, all the crap that they get from the business, the criticism, the this, the that, the fact that the CMO role has by far the shortest tenure even when you consider the fact the next worst tenure is the CRO. And so I got to a very existential place at one point in my career where I, I said, look, I've either got to find a way forward and fix this or I have to leave and go do something completely different because I, I just can't I can't deal with it. You know, at that age, I was still very much in my search for significance and all the negative feedback was essentially telling me that my teams and I were not significant and that was just psychically awful and so you know i started i got reintroduced to high school math you know university math started to really you know wrap my head around regression and early machine learning and things like that so by the time you know i got honeywell i was probably one of 3 to 5 CMOs on the B2B side of the fence that had successfully connected all the dots and demonstrated the value across multiple areas of the business to the satisfaction of the business. That's the key phrase. And so it was pretty obvious, though, that for this to be scalable and affordable and Understandable and all this kind of stuff, because all these are big problems that afflict analytics and data science in general. You know, we needed to automate parts of it. We uh, more as an aid to human beings than as a replacement, and we needed to make it far more understandable and comprehensible and relevant. I mean, it's the relevance of data science that has always been the problem. I mean, you got a, a high precision. Science operating in a low precision, high pragmatism environment called business, and there's just a fundamental clash here. And the business is not going to change. Data science has to change, and it's not that they're going to walk away from laws of gravity, you know, around math. It's the way it's operationalized to bring value to the business is what really matters. It's not about the math or even the data. So. Today, you know, we we automated it, or we created a platform that allows a data analyst, which is a kind of a lower level person, or even a non-data person, like a marketer or somebody like that, who happens to be particularly switched on around data and data type subject matter, can very quickly and easily create models that answer very specific questions Prove that out and then wire it up to APIs. And then at that point the models become kind of semi-autonomous, really, mostly autonomous. And so they they will recalculate every time new data is presented to the model at whatever cadence that thing or those things are measured. So in a lot of B2B companies, this is kind of like daily, weekly, and monthly kind of cadences, it will automatically update. The models and so the cool part about this is is that proof at the end of the day for the the decision makers for the team members operates like a GPS actually exactly like a GPS it's it's not just an analogy it's mathematically the same principles. So if you are you know just like on your phone, right? So you're here, you're at home and you want to go over here And the GPS says, okay, you have three choices, right? Three routes. These three routes are forecasts. That's what they are. Based on current traffic levels and everything else, these are going to be your best choices. And that's the same thing that proof does. And then you pick one and you're moving, you're executing against it. In your models, you also have a lot of the externalities that matter in there. And so that would be the equivalent to traffic or weather, or whatever, in your car. And then so it's constantly adjusting it and showing you how true your actuals are to your forecasts. And then what do you need? Why? If there is a divergence, what, what's causing that? And what, how can you right, So all this happens on one screen by adjusting the parameters that you control. How do you get back on track? How do you reroute? That's the yes. essence of it, right? Right there, and it's, uh, you know, it's the math. There's a lot of companies that are, that are offering marketing mix modeling, which is essentially what we've automated, but no one has ever come out with that particular perspective on it. And so for us, it's a it's a total differentiator.
0: You spoke a little bit there about coming up with a great idea, or a solution to a problem that, that people have uh, that you can solve. How do you know when you've come across this great idea and what do you think the steps are to then convert in? It helps
1: a lot if you have personally experienced the problem in depth. There's no substitute for that. It's one of my biggest issues with modern go-to-market, particularly the marketing portion of it, is that most B2B marketers, in contrast to B2C marketers, most B2B marketers rarely have significant customer contact. Their understanding, and I use that word very loosely, of their customers, it's based on hearsay. It's based on what they've been told by salespeople or their executives or analysts or whatever, right? You know, they might hold some focus groups for customers twice a year and all that voice of the customer and all that. But that is not the same thing as sitting across the table one-on-one or in a very small group and having a detailed and often very uncomfortable conversation about the problem and where your current solution solves the problem and where it doesn't even come close to solving their problem. And at the end of the day, it's their freaking problem that you're selling into. It's not your definition of their problem. I think that is uh, super, super, super important. You know, my dad always used to say that, you know, whether you do it literally or metaphorically, that when you point your finger at somebody, you're pointing three back at yourself. Trust me when I tell you, But I'm fully aware of that fact here, right? I have committed all of these sins. I'm not a saint on this.
0: I know you've got an interest in what role is data playing in this innovation? And how can leaders focus on the right data in this sea of data that we are creating?
1: Data is always, like by definition, this is an absolute statement beyond argument. Right? Data is always about the past. If you have data, it's on something. If you've measured something, it's because it's already happened. Bomb has already gone off, which means you can't do anything about it. It's just, it's already fixed in time, in place. So most business data is time series data, which is a really fancy way of saying that you're measuring the same thing over and over again at a certain interval of time. So you have this long progression. Of measurements of this one thing, so the temptation is to extrapolate because people love linearity. Linearity makes life simple to understand. The problem is is that life is multivariable and nonlinear, and oftentimes heavily time lagged as well. And so extrapolation, unless you happen to be in an extremely stable environment, which we are definitely not in today. Right, extrapolation is bust, but people still do it a lot. So they're using data to draw the wrong conclusions, and they wonder why they're so far out when reality hits. Right, and you see this in the VC space. Right, you Mm -hmm. see it all over. You know there is a remarkable lack of logic, or let's put it a different way, an adherence. A lack of adherence to fundamental laws of gravity in quotes laws of gravity in the analytics or mathematical space and you're just like wow how did you think that that was okay and so you know it's the one commonality right across uh, all of these periods of time that really doesn't change all that much is human nature so it's really you know there's a famous saying that all technology is amoral Right? it's what you do with it that makes it good or bad. That is extremely true, and and you're going to see that in spades with AI.
0: Well, that is a good segue actually <laughs> into the next sort of question. You can't really turn the corner at the moment without hearing the word AI in a sort of business sense. How do you see, especially for say marketing? I know where these where your expertise lie, but how do you see marketing evolving? as a discipline in the presence of A.I.
1: The thing that everyone's all excited about with Gen AI is essentially, if we strip all the hyperbole away from it, it's I want to get lots of something for nothing or almost nothing. And that stuff I'm paying through the nose for right now to different kinds of people and, and agencies and stuff. And wow, if I could claw back Half a million, million, 10 million, whatever it is that I'm spending on content creation by essentially doing 90% of it through Gen AI tools with some light human editing on top of that. It's like a major win. The problem is is that we almost never understand or, or try to understand, even look at go to market through the lens of economic. Principles, and so you know we already have more content on the web related to marketing than you can possibly imagine. And so, what that means as an economic principle is that the value of any one piece of content is extremely low, as the principle of inflation. Right, the more you print, the less each dollar is worth. Or or euro or whatever. So that's going to be the big problem, not just in terms of the value of the piece, but the findability of the piece. And then you've got really significant qualitative issues. So one of the ways that I tested Chat GPT, and it definitely is improved. Okay, there's no question about it, is that I asked it to write research papers for me on Pretty esoteric subject matter, like, for example, 15th century Italian technology uh, and innovation, where I knew a lot. I had a, a lot of personal expertise in it, and I wanted to see what would happen. What generated was a beautifully configured research paper full of footnotes and all kinds of stuff. and if you didn't know anything about that subject, you would say, wow, this is awesome. If you know anything about the subject, you're like, holy crap, right? There's like five major departures from reality here, right? I mean, it's qualitatively, like you'd get an F from your professor and it turned it in. And so... That's a problem. And particularly when the way that that converges with what I was saying earlier about marketers not really knowing their customers very well, the marketing team's vulnerability to this whole part of Gen AI is a huge vulnerable. Now, if we fast forward, I think that you're going to see people really acknowledging the problems and trying to do something about the problems. But I also think it's going to take a while because just look at marketing automation. Marketing automation re-energized GDPR, I mean, almost single-handedly. I mean, it, this was, so most people don't know this, but GDPR started in the early 1950s. It was a artifact of you know the World War II years and European sensibilities around you know, the, the police state and things like that. And so it had gotten pretty codified and it was a largely static piece of legislation for decades. And it wasn't until marketing automation started to really abuse the populace, so to speak, right, that EU government started to say, whoa, 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 and they started to resurrect GDPR. So I think that that is, you know, so the idea that we're going to have this sudden epiphany and turn on a dime is not, I think, that human nature does not support that at all. I do see this as being very, very similar to nuclear fission or genetic engineering in the sense that if it's not, not just regulated, but almost dominated by controls, we could have a real problem.
0: Yeah, it feels like it's moving very fast. I know there they are concerns. and
1: You know, going back now to the beginning of the conversation, right? I mean, the problem that most innovators have is that they want to innovate. And if they feel like they can do it, they really want to do it. It's like burning a hole in their pocket. And so they are, I think that Oppenheimer's story around the atomic bomb is extremely instructive here, you know. He and his team knew before the first detonation that they they had moral and ethical qualms, but they were theoretical because no one really knew what this was ultimately really going to be. I mean, the the opinion was all over the place. Some of these guys said, hey, this is going to ignite the entire atmosphere and we're going to burn up the earth, right, when we do this. And the other side was like, hey, you know what, this is going to be like a really huge bomb, but not really all that important. Right? After the first detonation at Los Alamos is when he famously wrote in his diary, he quoted a Hindu text where he said, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. And he almost immediately began to lobby the president of the United States and everyone else against its use, wishing that it could be uninvented. Well, I, I can tell you that the history of technology is that it's we never uninvent anything. It's not possible. Right, And so what rapidly happened is that different you know, atomic regulatory, nuclear regulatory commissions, or whatever the equivalent is, and non-proliferation treaties and all this kind of stuff were put into place. And fortunately, I think it has been good, right? but it hasn't been 100% by any means. But can you imagine if Oppenheimer and all the guys that are the kind of like the the antecedents to the innovators for AI or the innovators for genetic engineering, if they had taken the same position as those two groups and say largely, hey, you know what? This needs to be unfettered and commercialized. So can you imagine that? Can you imagine nuclear power unregulated or very lightly regulated? No. I think the other thing that's disingenuous, so... I think everyone saw the chat GBT CEO testifying in front of the Senate, U.S. Senate in the United States, about the need to regulate AI. You have to understand that from a commercial perspective, regulation of this is actually a really big plus for them because it creates a competitive moat that doesn't really exist for AI companies right now. So they have their own altru. Ulti- he has. It's. He's not saying all this because he is altruistically inclined about it. He's doing it because he realizes he needs a moat.
0: It is. Um. You know, people. You can't slow down innovation, and there's always going to be people trying to commercialize it. So, you know, regulation could be a good thing for it. Will will definitely be a good thing. But um, it is hard to slow down once it starts (laughs) the snowball effect.
1: The whole idea that somehow there was going to be a six-month moratorium on innovation in AI, I just don't think that anybody who signed it believed it. It was almost more like window dressing.
0: So so just uh, finally, as we close out the show, I'm quite interested if you could share any insight on your journey from becoming a CMO to a CEO. And anything you think would be valuable for our listeners
1: one of the things i talk about a lot is the we all have to be t-shaped in our approach right and the vertical part of the t is whatever we specialize in for me that was marketing and and some other things as well so i kind of have multiple t's in one sense but the thing that really makes it all come alive is the horizontal part of the t which is all of the contextual understanding and for a lot of marketers, this has to, I mean, it's a lot of things, but one of them is absolutely business acumen, really understanding the business, being able to talk to business leaders in a non-marketing language, in a business language. And so that is, like, I'm writing a book right now on the modern CMO. I mean, that won't be the title of it, but that's really what it is. And it's, I've been interviewing a lot of Fortune 1000 CEOs and CFOs and board members, as well as marketing leaders, and so there's a lot of great conclusions that we're kind of coming to from all this work. But one of them definitely is is that there is this language impasse, this understanding impasse that is translating into a failure of confidence, and that confidence is mainly the lack of confidence that the business has in. Marketing leaders. But as a reaction, you know, an understandable human reaction, but unhelpful in most of the cases, there's a backlash where marketers say, Well, I'm not confident in you either. And this whole idea that if your CEO doesn't get marketing, you should just resign and leave, right? As opposed to like helping solve the problem. And so I see it today. I see this whole thing mainly because I've lived it from both sides. I see it very much of a piece. It's indivisible within my own self today. It's one of the reasons why, for example, when we took our next big step as a company, the person, we don't have a marketing leader and a sales leader. We have one leader for go to market. Because I wanted that person and, and his team to bear the consequences on the sales side of a marketing organization that maybe wasn't doing what it needed to be doing. Or flip it around, right? It works the other way too. And that, I think, uh, it won't always be the right uh, structure. But right now, it very definitely is. You know, the other thing I've learned is that uh, I'm not the marketer anymore you know i kind of do this dev i do a lot of things that have a marketing aspect to them but i'm not calling the, the strategy anymore on that level and i think you have to be prepared to give that up otherwise you won't ever get good talent in in that area that you used to dominate
0: that must be hard
1: yeah i mean it is and yet it isn't
0: if you find the right people i guess it's a bit easier
1: well, but also, you know what compels you to find the right people though is that as CEO there are so many things coming at you that have nothing to do with marketing that if you don't let it go and give it to somebody else it will start to really suck
0: I only run a small business and you know I do feel that and I think it is nice when you do find the right people and you feel comfortable or confident in them to go and do that they might not do it the way you want to you had to do it, but, you know, they're doing it the way that they are doing it. And, and if it's working, it's working. And, yeah, I think letting go is a good sign of a, a good leader. Obviously, you run a bigger business than I do. so But I, I'm learning. So we're always learning, I guess.
1: Always. And actually, you know, other than my human relationships and all that kind of stuff, right, the thing that matters the most to me is the ability to learn. I, I'm kind of a professional student in that respect and so like you know you think about like okay if i lost something what would be the thing that would hurt the most it would be to lose the ability to learn and be aware of the fact that you lost that would that would be for me like, that would be good. i
0: think it would ring true uh, for a lot of people so, Mark, thank you. That is all we have time for today. But I really, really appreciate you spending the time with us, sharing your insight, your knowledge, your passion. I've learned a lot. And uh, I, I listen as well, too. I hope you've enjoyed being here.
1: I have. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you. And that wraps up this edition of the CEO.Digital Show. Please remember to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to look out the next uh, look out for the next roster of guests thank you very much